When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we talk a little southwestern bird hunting and preview Pheasant Fest 2023 with David Gutierrez. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 208. All right, welcome back to the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. we got a great conversation coming up with David Gutierrez of Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever. We'll get to that in just a moment. Thank you to Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. Had a bunch of new signups last week, so thanks to all of you out there making those voluntary contributions to the Birdshot Podcast. I really appreciate it, and you are definitely supporting and fueling the show, and I'm always working on sending as much value back to the patrons as I possibly can, and I'm always open to ideas in that regard, too. So if you are a patreon patron and have some thoughts on what else i could do that would be valuable to you please feel free to share that with me via patreon or phone text usually give all patreon patrons my phone number and love hearing from listeners out there so again thank you to patreon patrons they get access to some exclusive discounts we've got upland institute and gumleaf usa at the moment bonus content nick adair and i just put up another episode on the patreon feed this week where we caught up did a little hunting season recap and as we did in the previous episode we are continuing to show some GoPro clips and talk about those and break them down. Something fun that we've added, a little visual component to those bonus episodes, and we've been having fun with that, so we'll keep doing that for sure. We've got the monthly giveaways, Onyx Elite subscription card up for grabs this month for any patron signed up before the end of the month, and I cannot forget the Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers that I send out to all new patrons that send me your mailing address. I don't always get the mailing address from folks, so another reminder to people, if you are interested in getting those can coolers and stickers, please be sure to get me that mailing address. All right, you can check that out and sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Okay, this is the last episode going up before Pheasant Fest 2023, Minneapolis, coming up next week. And we've got a bit of a Pheasant Fest preview on today's show with David. But I will mention, as I have the past couple of weeks, I will be at Pheasant Fest with Upland Gun Company. I'll be spending most of my time in that booth, but I will also be at the Final Rise and Onyx collaboration booth for at least an hour each day of the show. I was just checking out Final Rise Instagram page, seeing the booth build come together. They were teasing it out a little bit. It looks very, very cool. I can't wait to see the Onyx and Final Rise booth at Pheasant Fest. If you find that booth, you won't be too 
far from the Upland Gun Company booth, so be sure to stop by and say hi. We'll have Dale Whitman in the booth. We are right next to my buddy Jay Dowd, Upland Lowlife. He'll be there with some cool swag, I'm sure. And I'll tease this. If you stop by the Upland Gun Company booth, you will also find some t-shirts that include original artwork from Jay Dowd. And we'll give you a little hint on a project that we are working on at Upland Gun Company. Stop by and see it. And if you are going to be at the show hanging around on Friday evening, I will remind you once again about the Onyx 40X Party, which is on Friday, February 17th at 9 p.m. in, I did not say this last week, and listener Steve pointed that out, so I'm sharing it this week, the Lakeshore Ballroom at the Hyatt Regency downtown Hyatt. Regency Hotel is kind of attached to the convention center via the Skyway. It's where a lot of the exhibitors and guests are staying. Maybe you're staying there as well. Pretty easy to find. I think there'll be plenty of signage there, but Lakeshore Ballroom, Hyatt Regency downtown, the Onyx 40X party at 9 p.m. on Friday. What is it? For every single dollar donated toward Pheasants Forever's Habitat Projects in Minnesota, Pheasants Forever is able to match those donations 40 times thanks to PF Chapters and Partners in Conservation. The result stretches every contribution into more quality habitat and more public access for all. At Onyx Hunt, they want to help spread this message and celebrate everything Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever has done to ensure we'll have healthy grasslands and birds for future generations. So, with that in mind, the 40X party is open to the public. There's no cost to get in. Beer is provided by Line and Kugels. There will be a live band from 9 p.m. to midnight, an opportunity to win over $25,000 in prizes from 20 great brands. And most importantly, for every person that attends the party and puts a pin in the favorite state map, Onyx Hunt will donate $40 to Pheasants Forever. Combined with that 40X match we mentioned earlier, that $40 turns into $1,600 of habitat impact. So keep that in mind. I know there'll be a lot of stuff going on at Pheasant Fest next week, but if you've got time, please stop by the Onyx 40X party. Drop a pin in the map in support of the great mission of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. It's going to be a great time. Kudos to Onyx Hunt and PF and QF. All right, that's all I got for you this week. We are going to talk to David Gutierrez of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Had a good time learning a little bit more about David, his background, some of the hunting he's been up to lately. And we do cover another Pheasant Fest-related item, a bird dog trauma seminar. Very involved, hands-on seminar about treating dogs in emergency situations in the field. David will tell you about it towards the end of the episode. When we spoke earlier this week, there were still spaces available on Thursday for sure and one of the other days. I've got links in the show notes. If you're interested in that, definitely check it out and you'll hear more about it on today's show. All right, that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot podcast from Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, David Gutierrez. All right, buddy. Well, we are rolling on the Birdshot podcast, joined by David Gutierrez on this uh february monday afternoon buddy how you doing doing a lot nick how are you doing i am doing very well and uh i know uh i know you do some traveling for your job we'll we'll probably have you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your job but put us on the map first where are we talking to you today so i'm up in uh fallon nevada i live up here full time in a uh 31 foot airstream that's like a 1977 so yeah i've got uh my girlfriend and me, three dogs and two cats, and about 150 square feet. So, now, living a good life. Are there 
How far out of your door do you have to walk to flush a chucker? Is that possible or is that, or am I not even close? <laughs> so, so chucker, it's about a 30 to 40 minute drive. Okay. But we do have um, valley quail that scoot around um, to and fro pretty regularly. So my, my year and a half old pointer pup, um, he's had a few points from inside the trailer as they're running around, which is pretty comical. <laughs> I but, love uh, that. Ugh. Yeah, when we boondock, um, then we we're definitely usually a lot closer to a uh, good chucker country, which is always always nice. It makes for a little less walking or a little less travel time that way. Sure. Yeah. Well, any kind of backyard upland birds is a certainly a luxury that not. I don't know how many people have that, but I would imagine not a ton. Um, I'm I'm looking over at my young English setter. She's looking out the back window into a piece of woods, and I have seen a couple of grouse out there over the years, but it's not very often. So even living here, we don't have, I don't have too many upland birds in the backyard. Yeah. It's, it's kind of cool out in the West or Southwest. Um, like in Arizona, the yard bird tends to be, you know, gambles quail. Yeah. Um, and then here at Nevada and then into California, I've seen a lot of like California or Valley quail just scooting around town doing their thing. So uh, it's always fun, but it can be a little challenging if you're trying to walk your dogs and a covey runs out right in front of you. Uh, things kind of kind of get a little uh, a little hectic quickly. I could imagine it's that. Good time. Yeah, I can. I have memories of sitting around my my uncle lives in well Chandler, Arizona, or he was there. He may be maybe nearby, but somewhere down there. And I re- remember sitting in the backyard pool and watching the what I assumed to be to have been Gamble's quill run along the stone brick walls that everybody has in their backyard and stuff. Oh yeah. Yep. That's uh my my place that I had in Arizona was like that. We'd have they'd run across the uh the cement wall and my dog would freak out a little bit. And, <laughs> yeah. Well David uh I, I imagine some listeners have maybe heard you on some other shows and are familiar with your work but tell us a little bit about what you do and um your position at Pheasants Forever Quail Forever. Sure. I am a senior regional rep for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever in the West or Southwest. Um, so I cover California, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, and Hawaii, although we don't really have a big footprint or presence in Hawaii. Um, the bulk of what I do is working with our volunteer chapters uh, that we have, you know, numerous in each state. Um, we talk about habitat projects, fundra- fundraising opportunities. Um, we do some higher level donations. Um, as well as, you know, R3 or outreach to, to youth, to veterans, to women, to adults. And that, that takes up, you know, the bulk of my time. And then I also recently started working in our or with our merchandise section. So trying to elevate, you know, our, our offerings as far as apparel, hats, uh, guns, just sort of all the things you can buy um, either through the chapter store if you're connected to a PF or a QF chapter or through the Shields website, we have some branded merchandise as well. Um, and then I've been recently picking up a few special projects here and there. Um, one of them is a uh, you know an event we're going to be hosting at Pheasant Fest this year, which deals with uh, bird dog trauma training, so teaching folks how to take care of a, a catastrophic injury in the field, as well as some other special fundraising events that this year have taken the form of hunts in uh, southern Arizona, so chasing. Chasing Arizona birds, which is one of my favorite things to do, and uh, just sharing those experiences with others. Yeah, love it. Uh, you got to be going on a couple of years at least with with PFQF. Is that correct? That is. I hit two years uh, this past October. So okay. So two years, three months, going on four months. 
So yeah, it's been a it's been a good run. It was a kind of an unexpected path, but one that I've thoroughly enjoyed. Um, you know, I get to travel with my dogs and chase birds and go meet with other like-minded folks who enjoy doing the same things. Yeah. Now I did. Uh, I want to just kind of ask you about the Hawaii thing. I know you said the it's not a huge presence there, but I am curious. I, I didn't know that. So is there like a single chapter in Hawaii or what's the status? So we do not currently have any chapters okay. in Hawaii. I believe we had one years ago. Um, for whatever reason, 2016 is coming to mind uh, well before I came on. But uh, I think just you know, we had a relatively small footprint of members there, yeah. and you know, I don't think we ever got anything off the ground. Um, so it's on the list. I've heard it's a unique, a unique place as far as the upland birds that exist on the islands. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've yet to explore it uh, beyond just a few Google searches uh, related to birds. Yeah, yeah, same, same here. And I, I bring it up because I have had at least a, a listener or two over the years sort of suggest that I do a an episode on pheasant hunting in Hawaii. I know I there's one guy, I'm pretty sure I have the email saved somewhere who has definitely hunted there and he he was kind of raving about it in certain uh in some ways and uh, definitely interesting. I I I went to Hawaii once on vacation and just um didn't know a whole lot about it other than outside of just sort of envisioning it as this, you know, ultimate vacation place or a nice place to vacation, but did a couple tours and started, you start hearing about the history and the ecosystems and the lack of predators and introduced game. It's just a really interesting and kind of unique ecosystem. So the fact that you got upland birds there um, has certainly piqued my curiosity. We don't have to do a birdshot podcast you know if i could get a trip out of that somewhere someday i would i'd be all for <laughs> <Yeah>. it david <laughs> so my i have a colleague who's one of our uh, like major gifts or donor relation officers and he and i have been having this sort of recurring you know not not a constant conversation but every once in a while we'll sit down and start chatting about hawaii trying to figure out how to crack the code and <laughs> you know make it into a, a really unique um hunt experience you know and obviously we're like well we'd have to go scout it out first obviously right. to, to make right. sure everything would line up um, <laughs> and we, I, we 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 have not cracked the code on that yet but uh, if anyone's listening and, and has an in for us or a starting point uh, don't be shy well i'm We'd love I'm, to make it happen yeah i'm, I'm envisioning uh uh, maybe a, a late night conversation at Pheasant Fest next week over a couple of beers that involves a birdshot podcast, Upland Gun Company, and PF, uh, some sort of Hawaii trip. I, I think we could we could come up with the idea, David. <laughs> you know, I think I think it's it's necessary. You know, we've been talking about it too long. It's just time for action. So I am count, count me in for that meeting. Just tell me the time and place, and I'll be there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well. I, we're going to talk a little pheasant fast. I want to talk about the bird dog trauma course. I would like to uh, get a little bit more of your background, and I picked up bits and pieces. And I was reading your bio earlier today, um, just kind of refamiliarizing myself with it. But um, you got your first bird dog in 2017, correct? Yep, that's yeah. correct. Uh, a Vishla named Murphy in December of 2017. I picked him up. Okay. Okay. I'll just. We don't have to go, you know, all the way back. I know you grew up outdoors a little bit in in was it Iowa? Correct. Okay, Iowa. But but just sort of like you know, how did you how did you find upland hunting? And then obviously that led to pheasants forever, quail forever. But how did upland hunting and bird dogs um, 
hit, come into your life, David? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I started with deer hunting, like archery deer hunting in Iowa okay. in 2016. So I was in my early 30s at that point, like post, post-military, post post-government work. And I really enjoyed hunting. I loved being outdoors again in, in a bit of a different context than what I had in the military. So it was sort of this, you know, finding my footing, reclaiming my time spent in the field um, outside of conflict. And the friend, uh, my best friend from home, his name is Ross. Uh, he got me into deer hunting and his father, his name's Louis, just made a recommendation to me. He's like, you know, I think you'd really like getting a bird dog. And, and Louis had had been a big waterfowl and, and pheasant hunter back when uh, pheasant numbers were good in my kind of youth. Yeah. Um, there was a bit of a gap where that changed, but uh, Louis always had, I think, labs or golden retrievers uh, for his bird dogs. And so he just kind of planted that seed in my ear. It's something I should look at. And I had always wanted a dog um, just growing up and never, never had one as a kid. And then the military schedule just wasn't super conducive to having a dog around. Um, so I just said, okay, if, if I get into graduate school, I'll, my present to myself will be a bird dog. And I got Ishla. Um, I wasn't a hundred percent sure how, how into bird hunting I would be, Okay. but I ended up sending him to get started for about a month of training. And then I took shooting lessons uh, while he was doing that and mostly just did the preserve thing the first year, just, I was in school. So travel was a little bit limited as, as was my budget. Um, and just even a few, a few preserve hunts, watching my dog do his thing, it put the hooks in and yeah. then I was pretty much all in after that. Um, so I knew I, I did a big month long trip to Montana, South Dakota and Iowa during my fellowship year. Um, I think I pitched it as a, like a novel research or something like that. Cause we were supposed to stay local to Ann Arbor, but, uh, there was little research. It was just hunting and chasing bird, <laughs> birds. Um, with my dog and I did that for a month and, and as grad school ended, you know, I was starting the job search again. And that, that same friend Ross, which just said, Hey, you know, you love bird dogs. You can talk to people. Um, why don't you look at pheasants forever as, as you know, a potential employer. So jumped on the website. This was September of 2020. And sure enough, there was this regional rep position for the Southwest. Okay. So I called, yeah, it was, I, I had looked on the website before, and it was mostly biologist positions yep. at the time. So I had, you know, I didn't fit that mold. But um, I called up the hiring manager, uh, Tom Fuller, who is now my boss, and just asked him about the position. Told him a little bit about my background. Uh, turned out he had gone to college in my hometown, so we knew a couple of the same people. Um, Small world. And yeah, yeah, and I put <laughs> in for it, and the interviews went well, and I I got an offer, and I accepted it, and I. Picked up and moved to Arizona a couple weeks later. That's crazy. So, so the the job at PF was the um, was the spark that that brought you to the Southwest. You didn't have a prior experience there. Correct. Uh, my only prior experience in the Southwest is I had done uh, our military free fall school, okay, like our skydiving school in Yuma. So I thought all of Arizona looked like Yuma, which is untrue. Um, and then I think I had done like a two week contract in the Scottsdale area, just working for a, a defense company, um, probably 2014. So about, about five weeks total I had spent in that area sure. and, uh, yeah, but just moved blind and made it work. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you're, here you are a couple years into it, enjoying it. Um, I'm curious, you said when you were 
going into the bird dogs and the upland hunting side of things, you mentioned uh, shooting lessons or shooting instruction. What? Tell me about that. Was it a serious endeavor or just something casual? Or tell me about that. Yeah, it was. It was fairly serious. I get pretty obsessive with hobbies, which can be a good and bad thing. Yep. But um, I think I, I had a lot of shooting experience, but it was specific to pistol, carbine, and, and long-range precision shooting uh, from from the military. And so the only shotguns I had really used were, you know, little shorty shotguns to breach a, a door. So like busting out locks or hinges. Mm-hmm. Um, and I figured I was spending, you know, a fair amount of money getting my dog trained. And so I thought the least I could do is hold up my end of things. And, and also, honestly, I think when the instructor asked me my goals, it was, you know, to not embarrass myself in front of my dog, <laughs> um, which, uh, which I still embarrass myself frequently yeah. in front of them. Welcome but, to the uh, club. <laughs> a little bit less. Yeah. But no, I took, I took private lessons. Um, gosh, I, I'm trying to think of a facility in Michigan. I, I can't recall off the top of my okay. head, but, uh, took some private lessons there, you know, and got some, you know, homework, so to speak. And then I would shoot sporting clays rounds in between those lessons and really just tried to figure it out and sort of untrain, um, certain, certain habits I had from shooting, you know, a rifle. So trying to pick up the sights versus, you know, just more focusing on the target itself mm-hmm. than, than a bead on a shotgun. Yep. Um, but it was, you know, very worthwhile and something I probably should do more of in the off season. Um, so I don't, I don't take so many shells to warm up come, uh, come October. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's partly why I ask because I don't think that's a very common thing. And I, I know I've read, I don't know, an article or two about just like, it's almost like people sort of, um, and maybe it's because a lot of us come to shotguns and shooting and maybe small game hunting at younger. Um, I don't think that's so much the case anymore as it used to be, but a lot of people do find it at a young age where you kind of just, you know, you just pick it up and you sort of learn on the go and you're not, your first thought is not, Oh, I need to go get lessons. Um, but I, but I don't think a ton of people do do that. Uh, myself included, I've taken a, a wing shooting lesson here or there. It's something I would like, like to do more of as well. But, and I kind of had that idea in the back of my head that you're sort of a all in obsessive as you put it type which i can uh, i can certainly <laughs> relate to that sort of approach yeah and i think i think part of part of that obsession um you know i like to find pursuits obviously that interest me but then you think about okay how can i um accelerate the learning curve as mm-hmm. much as possible and you know obviously when i was younger my, my financial capacity was was much less um but now it's like okay here's a pursuit i want to figure out who can help me, you know, accelerate, accelerate my learning. Um, who's an expert in this, in this area. So I'll try and seek them out, whether it's, you know, taking an actual in-person lesson or contacting someone, you know, and having like a sort of remote, uh, consultation. Um, but I've just found that to be a very productive and, and sort of efficient way. Uh, we're all part with some money in order to reduce the learning curve yep. on my end. And, and yeah, it's just kind of my approach and it's, it's worked out fairly well. Uh, most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a foolproof way to go, but, um, right there with you. I've, I've, and, and we're spoiled in that regard and that like the, the world that we live in is shrunk as far as like how you can find experts and people that can help you. And, um, you know, there's any number of ways to slice and dice, a a specific skill and, um, it gets niched down and you can really find the instructor or 
coach that is doing exactly what you want. You know, we're kind of lucky in that regard. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It's sometimes it's almost almost too much. Yeah. Um, so you can easily kind of like program hop or instructor hop if you're not careful. But if you find somebody whose approach kind of gels with with what you're trying to accomplish as well as your personality, I, th- I think it's one of the best. I mean, we're we're just super fortunate to have those resources at our at our fingertips. Right. So on the bird dog side of things, you had mentioned that you know you outsourced a little bit. You know, you went professional help there for at least at the beginning with the Vishla. You know, fast forwarding now five five years or so where are you at with bird dogs and this is a it's a common storyline that i've had on this podcast going through it and learning things on my own and just sort of how your perspective changes a ton i feel like the the first few years with the dog like where are you at with dog training and dog development at this point yeah so i i definitely i think probably did everything wrong a new owner could do um <laughs> you know thinking that i knew more than the bird dog with my with murphy and yeah you know, not following him when I should have or pulling him off a scent when I wanted to go this direction instead of that. Um, so I, I've learned um, to sort of, I guess, back off a little bit, let the dog do his mm, thing and, yep. and let the dogs work. Uh, for my, my pointer pup, I came out to, it's actually how I ended up in Nevada uh, last year, was I came out to Yarrington, Nevada and went to uh, Brad Higgins' place up at Higgins Gun Dogs. Uh, which is about an hour, I think an hour south of where I live right now. But uh, I wanted my pointer pup trained. Brad's approach is different in that there's there's not really woe training. It's it's more just introducing the birds to the, or the dogs to the birds. You know, getting them acclimated to gunfire, but more showing me that the dog has most everything necessary it needs to be a competent mm. bird dog, and just putting a few uh, a few sort of constraints on on that so it's you know getting him to to hold hold the point um he teaches like a flush stop so the dog will be on point and give it a verbal cue dog flushes the bird and then stops again you shoot it then you release the dogs Mm. and it was uh i think it took three three or three and a half days to get my he was five and a half months old at the time to get my pointer pup steady on birds teaching the, the flush stop and then to retrieve which was pretty wild to see and, uh, yeah. you know, kind of made a believer out of me. There was pretty much zero pressure applied to the dog, um, you know, with an e-collar. I think the only time the e-collar was used was for a, a recall. But, yeah, I mean, it was three and a half days, and, and I was hunting over my pup at shy of six months um, out of issue, and it was awesome. Um, so, yeah, it's I think my approach now is, is more just – Acknowledging that the dogs know more than me and always will. Um, so it's just trying to set them up for success with, you know, the spots I pick, um, trying to get the wind working somewhat in our favor as best we can. And then this year it was mostly just me being in good enough shape to get to the birds fast enough. Mm. Um, so in checker, checker hunting, my, my pointer pup's a really good, uh, a really good checker dog. And he just, the way he moves up those mountains, you know, it's, it's impressive. Um, I just, I think where I run into, ran into troubles this year was I couldn't keep up. So he'd be on point and he'd, he'd hold his birds. It's just the birds would only hold for so long. Yeah. Um, so I was, I think I have a GoPro video of just my dog on point and me wheezing in the background. <laughs> um, just, and, and then the birds go before I can close the distance. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, but it makes for a much more enjoyable experience. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not hammering them with an e-collar or anything like that. It's just 
let the dogs work, trust they're going to do the right thing and provide guidance where needed, but mostly hold up my end of things. Yeah. Yeah. I th- that's a, that's interesting. You sort of lay out that kind of story arc. I would say mine was pretty similar and it's, I would say it's almost like a relief when you realize like whatever that point is, you come to the realization, like how much is, and I, I guess it's a testament to the breeders and the genetics, you know, what they've done over the years, but it's just like, there's so much in that dog. Like you literally, uh, I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but it's almost like, uh, like bowling for kids. You know, you put up the bumpers where it's like the dog's going to do what it's going to do. Like you just have to basically just kind of help keep it moving in a general forward progress development, but it doesn't take all that much. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. And it's, it's, just bird context too, you know, and, and the birds are going to teach the dog more than I ever can. So like I spent the last, I was part of December and part of January um, in Southern Arizona and just a lot of, a lot of good bird contacts on merns that were holding their, their spots, you know, in the, in the, in the national forests and watching my, my visually had been on merns quail a couple times. And within about a day and a half of, of, of looking specifically for Merns, I mean, he had it, he had it down and he was just deadly, like got slowed, slowed his pace down, got real methodical and just, just covey point after point. Um, and just seeing how quickly he, he kind of transitioned from like running Valley quail up in Nevada to those birds that would hold. It was just like, Holy cow, this, this is awesome. Um, and, and so I'm, I get biased in that I, you know, this year I mostly hunted Merns quail because my one, my beast was really good on those. And then if not that, it was Chucker because my pointer pup was doing really well on those. But uh, it's the good dog work. You know, that that's kind of what it's all about for me and seeing them happy. I, I don't I don't care about shooting a limit or anything like that. I just want sure want bird contacts and a few in the bag for the, for the, for the boys to have when we get home. Yeah. Yeah. And that is kind of maybe one of the bigger X factors is, you know, wild bird contacts and that it gets brought up a lot, but you know, sounds like maybe similar to you, a lot of sort of my experience and perspective on bird dogs, you know, albeit, you know, a brief history is sort of relegated to this. Like I can get my dogs on, uh, a good number of wild birds and that certainly has played into you know it's been a huge proponent like to their development um so that's a it's a it's a luxury that not everybody has that's for sure yeah a hundred percent a hundred percent so talk to me about kind of going down to the southwest and just kind of now you didn't nece- you weren't necessarily that was kind of your first home range as far as upland bird hunting goes so you've you know you've spent the last however many years kind of learning how to hunt birds of the southwest the quail species and and chucker what have been sort of the biggest hurdles or challenges uh, you know what has what has it been like learning how to hunt that part of the country mm, that's a good question probably just the the sheer amount of public land available to hunt yeah um there's a lot of there are a lot of areas that look like great habitat that could hold you know whatever your species of choice um it's almost it's almost overwhelming sometimes yeah and i have definitely run into the the, the problem of not narrowing down the spot enough so it's just like i, I get to a piece of blm and be like oh, i'll just i'll walk here and you know whatever and uh you know walked a lot of miles wore out a lot of dogs that way um so I've really had to to learn to sort of narrow it down and be like, okay, 
I'm looking for this specific bird. All this looks like good habitat, but where's like the little two or three slivers of like premium habitat within this larger footprint that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, might, might be the, you know, fewer miles to get to the, and then a little bit better experience when we get up there. So that's, that's something I think I'll, I'll be learning for the rest of my life. But yeah. I did, um, I did better with it this year. Uh, I think by a significant margin. So I think I only had one or two days out chucker hunting where I didn't get into birds. Um, got into some scent and so I'm sure they were somewhere around there, but didn't pin them down. Um, and then in Arizona I had real, real good success this year, just finding them every day. Uh, but yeah, I just kind of, it's, it's so great that there's this much land available to hunt. You just have to be a little bit smart about how you use it, especially if you only have two dogs because uh, they get, they get tired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That I could imagine. I, again, t- tons of, tons of available land, easy, easy to just drop in somewhere and go for a hike. But of course we're always trying to maximize, you got limited dog power, right? Like that's probably our most valuable resource that and time. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're trying to find areas where you can get into, get into more birds. So when it comes to, let's say, let's go chucker and then maybe, maybe we'll go Mern's quail in Arizona. Those were two species you mentioned. What are, um, you know, and, and of course, like you said, you're, you're, you're going to be learning something new every year for the rest of your life. But like, what are some of the things you have begun to key in on when it comes to say chucker in Nevada? Oh boy. So I'll, I'll preface it by the disclaimer. I am not an expert. Yeah, yeah. And this is my second season on chucker. So, so for all the experts, please be kind. Um, <laughs> so this year it was, you know, I, I like, I'm still young enough and in shape enough to where I'll, I'll typically favor the the more rough terrain so i'm looking for higher elevations okay. you know five to eight thousand feet big rocky outcrops hopefully some cheat grass in the area um they which they seem to like uh water somewhere nearby um i do tend to have better success once the snows hit the ground kind of pushes the birds down a little bit to a lower elevation and then you can see tracks as well which is nice this year, I was finding them mostly on the saddles uh, on the high ground. So I'd get up into a ridge and those little, you know, dips or depression between the little mountaintops or hilltops. Um, late morning, I was finding, you know, coveys pretty consistently in the grass, on the flats, typically in the sunlight. Um, we'd get a relatively long point just because the wind seemed to be pushing pretty decent those times. Um, and then it was, you know, me trying to haul as quickly as I could to catch up to the dogs yep. and, and get a clean shot. Um, so that was, that was kind of the pattern this year. Uh, last year, I, I, I was finding them in, in a bunch of different spots. So I don't, I think I was just, last year it was more just, uh, Hey, this looks decent enough. I'll climb up the mountain. Like scattergun approach. Was, you know, you got to just oh, put yeah. boots on the ground and see what works. Right. Yeah. And then I, you know, the one thing I did make sure to do is I, you know, I use Onyx and um, when I would find birds, whether I shot in here, just found covey or, or you know, a uh, sign of, of chucker, you know, I'd mark a pin and I'd, I just would write a bunch of notes on that particular waypoint just yep. saying, hey, here's what I found. Here's what the wind was doing. Here's the weather. Was there snow on the ground? Here's how the covey acted when they flushed. You know, did they go downhill? Did they go up and over? That's cool. Um did they run? So I kind of have this log uh, that I've been keeping and I kind of reference and, you know, each year, hopefully I'll get a little more precise with those patterns. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah. Is there anything speaking? Then, oh, go ahead. 
No, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to chime in there. You mentioned Onyx, and I was curious if there is anything you were talking mainly about sort of reflective stuff going back and sort of logging notes and and um, i do that stuff as well like you can attach photos and stuff in there which is cool is there anything that you look at on other than you know something being public private are there things you can look at satellite imagery wise that that might indicate to you hey this might be a good area for bird anything you can key in on uh from the satellite imagery or yeah um so there's a spot, uh, a good example. So, I, so Onyx is very similar to some of the um, mapping software um, that I used when I was in the military. Okay. So we would would use it for, we had this old flight, I think it was a flight program originally called Falcon View. And then I used like ArcGIS and Google, Google Earth and yep. things like that. But um, so that sort of program is, is familiar to me and, and very comfortable to use. Um, so last year when i was first trying to figure out okay where can i go chucker hunting you know some some nevada folks were kind enough to point me in a general direction but that can also be just like this giant mountain range sure so i just started zooming in on the satellite imagery and i found this sort of ravine that went up to the mountaintop and it had a spring it what looked like a, a, a spring that was still active decent vegetation on the side and what looked like um you know there were signs of cattle grazing in the area so i was kind of banking on cheatgrass being being somewhat in and around there so that helped me kind of narrow down this gigantic mountain range to an actual like basically a single day hunt so I hike up the ridge and then i do like these horseshoes so i'll kind of walk up a finger get to the high ground walk the ridge and then come back on a different finger um, to make like a, a pretty large loop and and yeah it, it produced a bunch of birds i think that was that was Murphy's first time on Wild Chucker, if I recall correctly, and it ended up being where I shot my first. Speak of that. That was where I shot my first Wild Chucker as well. Okay. Um, so it's super useful in that way. I think I recently watched um, was it Ben's video on like scouting for e scouting for sharp tail. Yes. Uh, yep. Which was a fascinating class, and I wish I would have known all of that back in 2019 when i was blindly chasing sharp in montana <laughs> um <laughs> i think i would have saved some some heartache there yeah but uh but yeah no it's a, it's a phenomenal resource and they have a ton of cool sort of learning to use the app mm-hmm. uh, and e-scouting uh, courses on youtube which i think are just phenomenal and i, I watch those and i learn from them every time yeah yeah it's a an excellent tool. No doubt listeners of this podcast will have heard plenty about it. I, I will say I just, the more I've found, I guess it's probably because I look at more satellite imagery and I use a tool like Onyx and then you're associating some of the things you see there when you actually hit the field. So it, you can draw a lot of conclusions and the, the way that topography plays into finding upland birds, I think is a, there's a deeper connection there that I wouldn't have guessed you know, before using it. And I guess I'm sort of thinking back to like when I was younger, just wandering around the woods, you're kind of recognizing patterns. And I guess you're recognizing, you're, you're seeing patterns in topography, but you're just not really sort of vocalizing it in your head, I guess. But now that you look at satellite maps and it's just, you can tell so much about the way the cover is going to lay out on the landscape by looking at topography and some of the other things you can see with satellite imagery, which I find very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pattern analysis essentially. And right. I think, 
you know, something I'm thinking of as we talk, it's like, oh, I should go back and look at all the pins I marked where I, where I shot birds this year. Mm-hmm. And then I have a lot of photos from those places because, you know, I take a photo when I shoot a bird. And uh, it's like, okay, I should look at that terrain and remember what it looks like on the ground and then go look at the satellite imagery of that same terrain through Onyx and then be like, okay, here are the key, the key features that I'm picking up on. Here's what I can see on the satellite and then use that to scout other similar locations that may or may not hold birds um, as well. So it can be, yeah, you can do it pre-scouting and then you can also, you know, do it on the back end and mm-hmm. sort of use that knowledge to, to find more and more spots. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, that is one thing I do. I, I don't drop a pin per se in Onyx every time I, I flush a bird or drop a bird, but I do pretty much take, I probably take a picture of just about every, um, you know, grouse I'm putting down mainly because I know, even if I'm just laying the grouse on the ground next to my gun or something, I take a picture because I know that the geotag, um, I could go back and look at exactly where that photo was taken. And partially that just because I think that's cool. Um, it's fun to just go back and look. And then I sort of zoom out and you're looking at the map and you're kind of reliving the hunt, just looking at the satellite imagery, which is, uh, something fun to do when it's, you know, February in the off season, but also you, you have that information log. You just got to remember when you share your photos with somebody else, you know, you turn that location stuff off. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, always a wise reminder. Gearing up for your next hunt, check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's just... The, the tools we have, I think, are, uh, I feel spoiled because I didn't have those. Right. I didn't have as many years kind of walking blindly and not having this sort of data tracker to, to again, accelerate the learning curve and, and find more birds in a shorter period of time. So yeah. um, I, I feel very appreciative that that app exists. I, I use it on the daily. Yeah, it's that, like we were, you were saying earlier, you know, just talk about shortening the learning curve. I mean, the, just the level of efficiency that you can operate with even if you were starting to upland hunt today it's incredible really compared to 10 20 years you know you don't have to go back that far that's that's sort of how technology works which everybody's familiar with but um all right let's let's change gears and just talk merns a little bit so what uh again not uh, putting you up on a pedestal here as an expert but i think i find it interesting somebody who's just getting into it and obviously you found birds you have had success in the field so like what are the things that that you would look at and say yeah this is this is the patterns that have worked for me um, what comes to mind when it comes to merns hunting yeah, so, uh, you know, Southern Arizona, whether it's, I'll do like precipitation studies okay. um, on the, 
uh, was it the National Oceanic um, or the NOAA? Atmospheric Associate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you can pull these really cool overlays um, for like precipitation. I usually look like six months prior to the season or six months prior to the hunt date. And I'll create um, sort of, uh, what is it, they call it, like polygon shapes yeah. on Onyx yep. where I'll, I'll go, okay, these, these areas got five inches or less. These areas got 10 inches or less. And these areas got 15 plus inches of precipitation in the last six months. And so I'll, I'll create these little hotspots and I color code it for each uh, precipitation bracket. And so that'll be my starting point, um, you know, in, in Mern's country. Mm-hmm. And then... And then from there, I'll start to narrow it down to like specific canyons. Um, so I'll say, okay, like I'll, I'll typically I like to like camp um, out of my truck in those areas. So I'll find a spot that's like, okay, this this camping spot. Um, from here, I have access to like basically as many of these canyons as, as I can possibly walk um, without having to to relocate my campsite. Gotcha. Yeah. So that he, I can I can hang out there for you know three or four days and not, not hunt the same canyon twice. Um, so, and I'll try and put those as, as much as I can in those higher precipitation areas. Um, and then, and then just walk and, you know, early season this year, I was finding birds sort of in the low ground, uh, within the canyons, like in the low ground, in the sunlight, in the grass, um, was where my dog seemed to have a lot of points. That was you know December. And then this past January, it was more, you know, the steeper terrain, um, a little higher, higher up on the on those hilltops, mountaintops, whatever you want to call them. Um, but the terrain was a little bit less favorable. The you know birds were a little more skittish, um, which is just the nature of a, a later season hunt. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it's. I think I had two seasons or one season with I think only one covey contact. That was in 2020. Okay. I don't think I hunted them at all last year. Uh, Oh, did I? Yeah, no, I did. Just, just like one, one or two days, and then this year, I more so than like the desert birds, I, I did more merns hunting. Okay. I, I just enjoy for the dog work, but that was kind of the, just the approach. So I just look for canyons, areas that have had rain, that are in that you know southern Arizona that stretches, you know, basically Patagonia east to the New Mexico border. Yeah, yeah. And I was gonna ask. I had a, uh, I, a basic understanding, but the the relationship between the rain, and I, you hear the rains brought up with Mern's quail often. So the the idea is that six months ahead of time, you're essentially looking for higher higher quantities of rainfall, which lead to better cover in grasses. Is that the the basic premise? Yeah, for the most part. And I, if, if I screw this up, uh, <laughs> forgive me. But I'm putting you on so the like, spot. I think the desert. Yeah, the desert birds, they're more reactive to the uh, winter rains. Mm-hmm. So your gambles, quail, and scalies, you know, they need winter rains. That's what's going to sort of kickstart and determine a lot of their, their brood size. And then uh, Mern's quail, it's the summer monsoons. So kind of depending on what species you're chasing, you might need to look, you know, if it's desert quail you're going for, you might need to look farther back for that winter rains um, sort of uh, data, which is going to be not necessarily like six months out, maybe a little bit longer. And then, you know, Mern's quail, you could kind of target more of the, the summer, late spring to, to early fall um, rains. And then that can be kind of what dictates where you're, where you're focusing. Um, it's imperfect, but it helps me. Like, it goes back to that problem. There's so much land to hunt. Yep. So it helps me kind of narrow down and 
try and be a little more selective. Yeah, you got to have some filters in place. If for nothing, for no other reason than to just sort of quiet your own mind, right? And you're always second guessing yourself if you don't have that kind of a plan and filter in place. Yeah, exactly. And and even then, it's you know the first thirty minutes of a hunt, I'm just like, yeah, there's no birds here, it's <laughs> the wrong spot. And <laughs> Isn't then, that the and then funny? inevitably, yeah. oh man. <laughs> Like how, like how much your confidence can swing with a with one covey flush. You know, you just you hit, you put boots on the ground in a new spot, and you immediately start at a negative confidence level, and so you're just hammering away at your own mind until your your dog goes on point and you flush a bird, and then it's like flip it upside down. You know, then it's like oh they they, they got to be everywhere in here. You know, I just I just moved a bird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, and it's especially if you're. You know, if you're with friends and you take them to a spot that you know, and you're uh, like, I swear, there, you know, I know there are birds here, and they're like, are you, are you sure? Like, if it gets to the point in the hunt where someone's like, have you, have you found birds here before? <laughs> which, was said, yeah. which was said to me this year, uh, and I was just like, oh my gosh, please, just, and, and you know, we we found birds, but right. it's that stress, which is just so unnecessary because even even just walking with the dogs and gear, it's, it's, it's all a good time, it's all fun, but, right? Uh, yeah, but that's yeah, yeah, that's how we are, though. I mean, I. Yeah, I can relate to that. And and the reason I asked about the rains is I had, you know, I've heard my buddy Tyler Webster talk about that. And I know there's, there's a kind of a unique relationship with the rains at different times. And I just, having not done it myself, not been down there to hunt, I just think I haven't sort of fully compartmentalized all that in my mind, but, uh, there's a, at some point it'll happen. I'd love to get down there. I was, I did a, an episode last week with my buddy Nick and we're just, he was sending me photos of his trip down there and just, man, the, the country just so, especially the Merns for some reason, for me, the little Oak trees and that golden grass and the blue sky and the mountains. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of beautiful places that upland birds live, but, uh, that is, that is certainly one of them. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. And that's part of it for me too. It's, you know, especially if you're, if you're camping down there, you wake up, you got these, oak savannas and mm-hmm. this beautiful terrain that, that kind of envelops you and and it's i i love that just as much as i love hiking up to the top of the mountain looking for chucker it's it's sort of contrasting you know i'm at the bottom of a canyon in one and the other one i'm at the on the right. mountain top but it's just yeah there's there's nothing quite like it um and i think it's one of my favorite areas to hunt um, I, I highly encourage you to the take a trip down there yeah got to do it i'll have to i'll have to hit you up when i do that let's talk bird dogs briefly here before we maybe start to preview pheasant fest a bit but you've got the vishla and you have the year and a half old pointer i'm curious uh, we talked about them a little bit earlier in the episode but what sort of differences what are you seeing you know from from bird dog one to bird dog two but then you also have two different breeds so compare and contrast or uh, what comes to mind when i ask you about the differences and and or similarities between the two dogs. Yeah, so the Vishla, he's five now. Um, bit more of a, well, a lot more of a mellow temperament um, <laughs> in the house, especially. He has a very serious off switch and wants to. If you sit down, he's going to try and sit on your lap. Oh. Um, in the field, he's a lot more methodical. Uh, he's doesn't really like. He's not doing that constant sort of sprint to look for scent. He's he's more. It's like a trot. Um, but I, I know that with him, if there are, if there's scent or if there are birds in the area, like I, I can definitely count on him to find it. He maybe just can't go quite as long and hard as, mm-hmm. as the pointer. Yep. The the pointer pup is he has two speeds. He's either sleeping or he's kind of at a full out sprint. <laughs> um, 
and it's it's so wild to watch too because he just does not does not stop in the field and he's he's a little more high strung he's he's still a puppy too yeah. um but yeah. inside the house you know he's easily excitable it's he almost has like a a really hard you know it's hard for him to focus on one thing at a given time um but in the field it's it's just all it's all out all the time um you know and, and occasionally it causes him to outrun his nose sure but, uh as far as sort of natural ability and part of this might be because I didn't necessarily see all my, my Vishla's development when he was away at training. Um, but just watching my pointer pup sort of learn the ropes, watch other dogs, watching how he, you know, getting him steady or steady to flush or, or, you know, steady to release was just a lot faster, but I think it was also probably done a little bit better than I, I did the first time with my Vishla. So it's, He's he's a dog I'm very excited about. Um, he scares he scares me every time we go on a hunt, just with how hard he goes. Hmm. Um, whether it's you know scooting under barbed wire or running to the edge of a, a drop off in the mountains to go see where the birds went. Yeah, mild to moderate panic usually every time. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but you know we have we have an agreement, and I give him a little pep talk before a hunt, just saying I'm going to let him do what he does, and I'll you know do my best to keep him safe. But yep. you know if he outruns his headlights i can only do so much but uh, right. no, they're they're cool dogs it's i'm not like a partial to any one breed at this point I'm, i think my next dog will probably be a setter uh, um just i've i've considered those dogs for a while and you know just try something different but uh yeah i just i love it, it's always fun to hunt with folks and you get to hunt over a different dog who has its own quirks and temperaments um yep one of the one of the guys had a this last time in Arizona, he had an old seven-year-old English pointer. And that, that pointer hunted a lot like my Vishal, very slow, methodical, kind of worked at a trot. If there were birds there, he would find them. And if you didn't get to him fast enough, he would bark at you <laughs> if he was on point. So like, and that was like, hey, dude, I'm on point. Hurry up. Get over um, here. Yeah, and, and it was just hilarious because we'd be like, where'd he go? And then you'd hear a bark like, oh, crap, you know? Um, and there were always birds there, so... Yeah, they're just. I think I learn. I learn a lot from them. And, uh, I've come a long way with my patience as a result of having dogs. Yeah, and uh, yeah, they're great, great decisions that I've made. Um, so, yeah. If a if a pattern is establishing itself, it would be variety. It sounds like in David's pack of bird dogs. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and my girlfriend has a dog too. She has an American Bully, and he's been hanging out enough with my dogs to where he likes birds. And that's cool. Occasionally he'll flush them. Occasionally he'll point quail. So I might, I might get get him on birds this summer. Get him trained up and get him gun broke, and uh, you know take him out on some smaller. He doesn't quite have the endurance. So sure, be a good like hunting a farm, forty uh, acre plot type type bird dog. But uh, yeah, I just I just love all dogs, man. And you know getting them out in the field is is just incredible. Yeah. Well, I got I'm looking at two setters here that are if they could hear you through my headphones, they'd be nodding their heads that your next one should be a setter, David. <laughs> now, are you, Nick, are you a setter purist? Is that, is that your well, dog? I, I mean, you could look at, from the outside looking in, you could look at me and say that I am, but I will tell you that uh, I pretty much stumbled on the English setter when I was going to get my first bird dog. The story I've told many times, I always thought it would be a German short hair. That's what I envisioned when I thought of a bird dog was a, was a German short hair, and I love short hairs. Uh, but I kind of stumbled upon uh, the breeder of where I got my two dogs, Jerry Coulter, and just sort of 
really, really liked the dogs that he was breeding and kind of, you know, went there and just sort of fell in love with the dogs. And now having had to for the past eight years or so, um, I don't see it changing anytime soon, but I, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm a setter guy for the rest of my life. I mean, I, I get excited thinking about different kinds of dogs and, and I, I'd like to think about possibly another one, but, um, if you were to ask me today where my next one was coming from, it probably would be <laughs> the same place. Cause I, I really do. I love them and I love following the setters in the grouse wood. So, um, if that makes me a setter purist, I guess, I guess I am one at this point. <laughs> <laughs> there are worse things to be so i mean it but it kind of it kind of, it's a bit on brand right like minnesota grouse woods right i, I think english setters um everything fits the mold. Pointers, right yeah 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 definitely setters are yeah. are thought of as a as a common dog in the grouse. i mean i don't know what the numbers are uh, as far as how it breaks out but it's certainly uh it translates to some of the paintings and the literature and going way back if you want to romanticize it you definitely can <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, and I think too, like I hunted over, like I, I've always had an interest in the setters and then I had a chance to hunt over a few this season down in Arizona Okay. and just, you know, phenomenal dogs, fun to watch. Um, they had, they all had really good bird manners. And so it was just like, okay, that was kind of the, the reassurance I needed. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just like, ah, okay. I think that that'll work. Seeing, seeing one in action is, is, and and not setter specifically. I'm just, I'm just any breed. Like it's really easy to sort of sit back and, you know, sometimes, uh, a conversation or a discussion warrants the broad stroke of uh, kind of categorizing or generalizing about a breed. I mean, that is just the way you talk about them sometimes, but um, there's so much variety within each breed. It's almost unfair to do that. So it's kind of like if you, that's why I do appreciate like what you're saying when you actually get the chance to hunt over a dog, just to see what that individual dog is like as a representative of a breed you, you learn a lot that way and i think you see the possibilities yeah and i think the hardest part is is just i don't have enough lives to have all the right. dogs i want right so that's just it it's uh it's it's tough I've, I've hunted under you know over phenomenal dogs of all types britney's setters uh, gsps pointers and i uh yeah i just don't have enough enough time to have them all so lucky I for think, us I think that's why i like to to pick a few yeah so. and and we we can have friends and we can hunt with our friends dogs and you know that's that's how you got to do it yeah exactly talking about chucker hunting and that's the thing that i always um it always comes to mind like just thinking about and i'm sure i mean i know it's happened i i probably have seen it somewhere but dogs you know dogs going over a cliff or uh uh, an incline, you know, dogs fall, they get hurt. And I mean, it just seems so nerve wracking, especially I think, no, I haven't spent a lot of time out there, but I just, what I imagine some of the visuals to be and like knowing how fast dogs move, like how can they even, how could they even avoid injuring themselves? You know, it seems crazy, right? Yeah. And I don't know if it's just like an innate, like survival instinct right. or, um, or what that is. Yeah. Cause I think my, my pointer pup was, about six months when we, uh, I mean, he's probably just, just shy of that when I took him chucker hunting for the first time. And, um, his first point, he was up on a boulder, like pointing down in the little kind of gap between some rocks at, at a covey. They flushed, I shot one. And then he just, you know, he was young enough to be, to have still be a little bit timid in certain ways. And so he just stood there and kind of whimpered cause he didn't know how to get down. Yeah. Yep. which I was very, I was very thankful for. So I, <laughs> you know, I put the gun down, picked him up, put him down, and then he went after the bird. Um, 
but you know, he he goes like I said, he goes from zero to a hundred and kind of nothing in between. So he'll run up towards like a, a drop off and then just stop all of a sudden. And I'll I'll typically like holler at him as he's getting close to the edge mm-hmm. just to maybe take his attention. Or I, I don't know if it's actually necessary, but it makes me feel better. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, but uh, I mean, they've he's he's a very sure-footed dog, and um, I, like I said, I just have to trust that uh, he wants to come back from the hunt as much as I want him to. So. Yeah, yeah, and I I mean I I could also bring up the you know the uh, i see the speed at with which my dogs run through the grouse woods and i i suppose that's a it's a similar feat of being able to move through that kind of cover and not run into a a stick or a tree at every twist and turn i mean it's just they obviously have a have an innate ability to move through cover and and, and or over challenging terrain which is part of what makes them so special yeah no, it's i mean they're they're athletes for sure um you know obviously it doesn't take all the risk out of it but it at least I think tips the odds in your favor a little bit. Right, right. But anyway, speaking of uh, scary stuff like that and potential injuries and trauma, I do want to I want to look ahead to Pheasant Fest a little bit next week. Now, this episode will be out on Friday the tenth when this episode will air. Pheasant Fest being next week, you have helped uh, put together a uh, a new event at Pheasant Fest this year, which involves uh, bird dog trauma and uh treating injuries in the field what to be aware of what to look out for tell us a little bit about that david sure so we are hosting uh, it's called bird dog trauma training um if you're curious about it you can go to pheasantsforever.org slash k the number nine uh trauma um and the impetus for this was my pointer pup uh got shot by another hunter last year at the end of the season um almost lost him in the field and i had had for my time in the military some some training and, and real world experience on treating traumatic injuries so i knew enough to you know get a tourniquet on them stop the bleed uh we were lucky enough that a mobile vet mobile vet met us on the side of the road and opened up and tied off the the actual bleed itself wow. um, so stabilized him enough to where i could get him to an emergency clinic for for overnight care uh, up in tucson arizona um and, you know, that was obviously, you know, a terrible thing that happened. And just in talking with colleagues and some other folks, sharing some lessons learned, there was sort of this refrain I kept hearing that, man, I, I don't think I would have known what to do mm-hmm. in that situation. And so we started talking a little bit more and a little bit more. And um, a few of my old teammates from the military had gone on to other units and became dog handlers, so like the, the multipurpose canines. So I called them and I just said, hey, what, what kind of kits are you carrying? Um, what kind of gear are you using to treat dog injuries? Uh, you know, my, my knowledge on, on dog-specific stuff was a bit lacking. So they shared what they were doing, what was working, what wasn't working. They sent me a couple of the kits that they carry on missions um, just so I could use and kind of dissect those. And then just in talking with um, my boss and some other coworkers, I kind of pitched this idea of, hey, what if we did this event at Pheasant Fest that was, you know, like an educational opportunity, but it's also a fundraiser for us as well, um, to where we brought in some experts. Uh, we have some military guys that have come and, and lead the trauma training. Uh, what if we brought in some experts, taught folks, you know, what to do, how to treat these traumatic injuries in the field, and, you know, with the, with the point being, you know, enough to stabilize a wound so that you can get the animal to that next level of care. Um, and, you know, I'm fortunate to work at a place that's super supportive of ideas like this, and we've been coordinating it for, you know, quite a few months now, but it'll be 
we have classes running Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Um, the Saturday class is sold out, but we still have, I think, seven seven spots open for Thursday and five spots open for Friday. Okay. Uh, the courses are six hours in length. Whoa. They'll run from like eight, yeah, eight a.m. to three p.m. Uh, they'll be a, start with a lecture, and then there'll be a, a fair amount of hands-on. We have these uh, training dummies that are they're canines, but they they bleed. You can break bones on them. They bark. You can simulate, you know, sucking chest wounds. You can do needle decompression, um, you can innovate them, all, all these things. They're pretty pretty incredible. And uh, folks are gonna learn, you know, in the classroom about all the different things we're gonna to, to address and learn how to treat. And then they get hands-on practice. Uh, one phase will be like on what we call like a dry dummy. So one that's not bleeding, but it's learning how to pack a wound, how to splint a broken leg, things like that. And then they'll also be running uh, training lanes on the, the sort of live live dummy so the one that bleeds and everything so you can see okay am i actually cranking this tourniquet down tight enough to stop the bleed or packing this one well enough to stop the bleeding um and yeah so it's it's they're not short courses uh yeah. but i think folks are going to get a lot lot out of them and this is you know our first attempt at doing something like this but i hope it's uh one that continues uh we could a program we continue to build out in the future yeah yeah that's i had not heard of anything like that is that um i suppose in the in the veterinary world and or the military, like where are those that like that dummy technology and that stuff stemming from? Is that from military applications and, and or vet stuff? Yeah. So I think uh, if I recall correctly, um, let me pull it up here. So I think the company's called TACMED Solutions okay. that runs the, or that, that created the, I think they call it their canine diesel mannequin. Um, but that was developed, I believe in, in, collaboration with a military unit um you know for kind of for this specific purpose not hunting but you know specific to the canine injuries in in combat um and yeah we had uh you know when i was in special forces we would do quite a bit of medical training on you know various training aids um just to simulate you know real world injuries as best as we could and you know by the time you encountered those in the field you actually had a a pretty decent grasp on what to do would you say, and again, drawing on your experience from special forces and having been through some of this stuff, it's one of those things where you know, a lot of times the safety talks are somewhat at the surface level. And I think it's maybe partially because, you know, we, we don't want to think about that stuff. And obviously, you know, we're hoping to never have to do anything, but would you say like, that's where the biggest gap comes into play is that, um, sure. You might know how to do something when you're sitting, you know, reading a manual, but like the stress and emotional forces on you in the field. Like, I just feel like that's, is going to flip things completely upside down and you would have a lot more experience with that than I would. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a very astute observation. Um, you know, I, I hadn't done any real medical training for six or seven years when, when my dog had been shot. So I knew, I knew, okay. So I, I had a first aid kit with me, but I I made a bunch of mistakes just on my end because it it had been so long and I, I didn't do the proper prep. I didn't do the proper testing of the gear I was carrying. So like the tourniquet I carried was, was a, uh, combat application tourniquet works great on people for a dog that was the size of my dog. It was too big. Mm. Um, and I couldn't get it high enough and then, and tight enough to actually be a, a used tourniquet. So, you know, I was like, okay, that doesn't work. I made a tourniquet out of a, a slip lead and a stick. Great. Stop the bleed. But then I had all these other components that I'd forgotten about. So I didn't have a muzzle for my dog. 
So I'm cranking down this tourniquet and it hurts and he's biting me and biting the tourniquet and pulling the stick out, causing the bleed to open back up. I had this, so, you know, I essentially have this non-compliant patient, which creates all these other problems. Right. So I can't, I can't control them. I have to manually, because of the, the field expedient tourniquet I used, I had to manually secure the tourniquet because I couldn't tie it off. So that limited how I could carry him out. Um, and so, you're, yeah, for basically two hours, I had a, a dog, a 50-pound dog fighting me. Um, and, you know, I can't, I'm trying to be like, dude, I'm trying to save your life. And right. obviously that doesn't right. uh, yeah. make a lot of sense for the dog. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was this, A, it's, it's a lack of experience. B, there are just some small, some small considerations you need to keep in mind when dealing with a dog. It's testing gear. And I, I do think, too, it's a, it's a gap um, in knowledge. You know, we think about it as all the time we spend, you know, scouting hunting spots, yes. taking shooting lessons, finding the best gear, getting our dogs, you know, steady to release or whatever whatever standard you want your dog to, to be at. And then there's, you can find kind of countless options for, for fulfilling those, those knowledge gaps or equipment gaps um, in the public domain. But the actual sort of canine trauma how to treat these in the real you know severe severe wounds i think that's that's a bit missing um so you know this is our attempt at starting to change that and i think there's some other folks that are probably going to be doing similar things or starting to do similar types of courses um and and i hope it expands because it's you know if you're going to spend three thousand bucks five thousand bucks on a shotgun and five thousand bucks on a dog um you know you can spend some money to learn how to keep them alive and uh value add it yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. And, and, uh, yeah, I hope, I hope that it does continue and I'm, uh, I'm here to, to help <laughs> if I can, cause I can tell you it's, it's an area that I'm, uh, severely lacking. And even just hearing your sort of harrowing story from last, I didn't know that that's scary stuff. Again, that it's one of the things like, you know, you probably don't, not, you don't want to wake up every day and think about that kind of stuff, but boy, there's a, there's a, a place for a healthy dose of thinking about stuff like that, especially when it comes to these bird dogs, you know, family members, we put them on a pedestal and man, I, I didn't know the extent of the course. And, uh, I wish I could go to the Thursday one. I'll have to think about that. Think about my schedule. Cause I'm obviously coming down there looking forward to pheasant fest as well. If folks do want to sign up for one of those remaining spots, I'm I'm assuming the best place to do that would be the webpage that you listed, which I will definitely link in the show notes, pheasantsforever.org slash K9 trauma. Yeah, that's the that's the landing page. It'll give you a, you know an overview of, of what it is, uh, who all is involved, and sort of the what the trauma management lecture and training is going to focus on as far as you know massive hemorrhage, airway, and respiratory emergencies. Um, you know, folks who attend are going to get a, a trauma kit. So it's not completely built out and everything you're going to need, but it's, it's going to get you started on the right path. And it'll be a lot of the same stuff you're going to be using in the class. Um, but yeah, we still have slots available. Um, I, I think it's 500 bucks per person. The classes are limited to 20 students. Um, and we have spots open for, for Thursday and Friday. So um, I know I'll be, I'll be in the class. I won't be taking it. I'll be, I'll be managing, you know, the course, making sure it goes smoothly, sure. but I would definitely love to have a refresher on this as well for myself. So, yeah. um, it's a, it's a perishable skill. So it, it requires sort of regular maintenance. Yeah. Well, well, we'll, I'll take your word for that, especially given what you've shared on the show today. Um, I, I was going to say, I, I did see a, uh, smiled. I saw a familiar face on the webpage, Jerry Snetzinger. 
AKA the trap doctor. Um, I, I met Jerry when I worked with the rough grouse society and he was involved in some events there in the chapter there, but he's, he will, I assume be giving a demonstration on how to get dogs out of traps. Yep. So when we, when we're doing the hands-on portion of the training, um, of the trauma training, that's, we have to limit the amount of people that can go through that at a given time, just to make it the best experience possible. So Jerry's going to be running folks through some trap escape, uh, education. We're going to have Dr. Seth Bynum is mm-hmm. going to be talking canine nutrition for sporting dogs. And so that'll, that'll kind of keep the flow of things good, but it's also, it's all complimentary stuff. You know, yeah. I, I think of my knowledge with taking care of doing, knowing well enough to take care of uh, traumatic injuries in the field. But the minute you throw a trap into the equation, I'm, I'm shamefully <laughs> lost. Um, yeah. So I know that's, that's something that I, I personally, like if I'm in an area where I know folks are trapping and I have a dog on the ground, I get, I get nervous because I'm. I realize like, oh boy, I I don't know if I can I can hold up my end of things if something goes wrong. Right. So yeah. that'll be an enlightening uh, an enlightening part of the the training course. So let me ask you this: What you went through last year with your pup um, in in the gunshot wound? Is there anything that you hundred percent carry with you now? Do differently? You know, this season from last season after having been through that. I know you mentioned a couple of things like the tourniquet. Um, what did you absolutely change about your field preparedness this year yeah so a lot of it is the you know a lot of it is the first aid kit that i carry so i'm carrying a whole lot more than i did before um it's there's some elements that are dog specific like the you know i'm carrying a muzzle i have a muzzle and then i use one of those oh if you ever look at like the rick and ronnie smith those figure eights yes um, i'll use that as like a, a secondary muzzle in case i've got a dog that's bigger or smaller too big or too small for the muzzle. I'm okay. carrying. Yep. Um, love the, love those things. Those are super cool. And then, uh, you know, the main tourniquet I have for a dog is called a SWAT T. It's actually like an elastic tourniquet that you can wrap and use it as a, a tourniquet, a pressure dressing, and then a, um, just like a, almost like an ACE wrap to secure gauze or, oh, or that's cool. yeah. multi-purpose. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the, you know, and I also have, um, gauzes that are infused with different clotting mechanisms, uh, standard gauze, uh, some Vaseline in case there's like a chest wound or anything like that. And you need to mat the fur down to get a good seal. Mm. Um, so I carry a lot in that way. Uh, and then also it's just kind of an awareness as a, as a dog handler on the ground. Um, I'm a lot more choosy with my shots. Um, yep. You know, especially in the, where you're at sort of different terrain elevations. Yep. Um, I definitely, you know, part of it was, nervousness at the start of the season but it's also just just shot selections a little different for me now and and also you know if i'm going to put dogs on the ground with someone else uh you know just being very clear about like hey here's here's how it's going to go here's the shots we can take here's the shots we can't take yep um and you know if i don't know somebody i'm probably not going to put a dog on the ground with them right away yeah um as I'm a, i'm already a stickler for gun handling safe gun handling and if if someone just has some habits i don't expect I don't expect those habits to change within 30 minutes. So I'm just not going to put my dog in that position to be exposed to unsafe gun handling. And, and I'm probably going to sit the hunt out anyways, if somebody's, you know, not safe with a shotgun. Right. But uh, yeah. Um, and then I think the other part too, is just, you know, with Ozzy having been so, so young last year, I think he was nine months old when he got shot. Um, just remembering that they're, they might be phenomenal hunting dogs, but they're still puppies. They're still part of the family. And, you know, it's just, I have to be the one who's responsible for setting them up for success and keeping them 
as safe as I can. So the day he got shot, he was just, we were in Mern's country and he was just on a tear that day, just doing a, doing the puppy thing, um, disappearing down a canyon to where I'd be losing like GPS signal with them. And I should have just cut, cut the hunt short, turned back towards the truck, let him run it out and just not worried about the birds. Um, you know, but I didn't. And uh, yeah, mistakes were made. So that's, that's something I'm a lot more uh, cognizant cognizant of this year or I was more cognizant of this year was just reading the dog and saying like, yeah, today might not be the day. So let's just call it, call it a walk and, and get home safe. And, and then when they were on, just making the most of it. Yeah. Yeah. Understandably great advice. And, uh, I'm certainly glad he's, he's still with you. That's for sure. Oh yeah. He's a maniac and <laughs> no, no issues with like no, no blinking birds after getting shot, not gun shy at all. So it was, you know, a terrible, terrible thing that happened, but I, I am very fortunate that he lived. And I'm also very fortunate that we can kind of turn it into something positive mm-hmm. for others and, and, you know, make it into a, a good experience with this trauma training as well. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully start changing that uh, awareness and, and providing more and more education to folks so they can take care of their buddies in the field. Absolutely. Good on you, man. Will there, I don't know if you guys have thought about this, probably have, but any chance that these seminars might be recorded and or somehow made available I, you know you're not going to get the hands-on experience that you would by attending the show but um, anything like that being talked about we are having those conversations uh we are not going to record the sessions at pheasant fest just due to it's sort of short notice for that and yeah. our, our audio visual, visual guys are all all tied up sure um but we are having conversations about you know a sort of video format covering the same the same content um, as well as, you know, potentially doing more of these down the road. But uh, I'm sure those conversations will get more in depth post Pheasant Fest once we can kind of see what, what we changes we might make, what we can do better, uh, all those things. But I, I hope for this to grow because um, I think it's, it's a lot of folks would be interested in it and it's valuable info. Yeah. And yeah, and actually you answering that question, there's probably a, you know, it's one thing to record a seminar just because you're there. Uh, but if you were going to do something video wise, there's probably, you could probably do it um, a lot better by not involving like an audience and everything. So yeah, that that's cool. Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully you guys can put something together on that in the future. Yeah, I hope so. And then that's, that's beyond my wheelhouse. So I'm, I'm sure. referring to the experts and, and I think they have some ideas on how best to capture it. So yeah. Fingers crossed we can make that happen. Cool. Well, before we let you go, just a general preview of Pheasant Fest. Uh, as I mentioned, coming up next week, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I know I've got a lot of listeners in Minnesota and elsewhere, but I'm assuming uh, some folks out there will be attending the show. Anything you're really looking forward to or or would point us to? I know you're going to be um, doing some stuff at the Upland Rally, and uh, it's going to be a fun time. Yeah, there. I mean, Pheasant Fest is, is a good time for any Upland enthusiast. Um, so it's our 40th anniversary for Pheasants Forever, so it's a big bash in that way. Um, we got a lot of great vendors that are going to be on the show floor. I am very much a gear nerd, so uh, you know I will be with my limited free time running around checking out the latest gear. Um, Friday night Upland Rally, uh, we're going to have some good raffles. Um, you know, I'll be running one called. Uh, uh, bottoms up raffle and that's going to have uh, some yeti premiums as well as a per- really cool premium from upland gun company that i'm excited about 
Um, you don't say. Saturday night. I do say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited about that one, too. <laughs> A chance to win. Yeah, give, yeah. Us, give us the details here now that we're on the podcast. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I won't beat around the bush. <laughs> um, so... So how it's going to work for that particular raffle is there's a there's a hundred, a hundred tickets available for a hundred bucks, and if you buy into the raffle, you're going to get a yeti, a yeti mug. I don't recall which exact one it is, um, and then I think there's going to be an Ox Elite membership, and then some swag or a little little stamp to to redeem for some swag at the Upland Gun Company booth, um, that. You and I have coordinated, Nick. And yep. then the main prize is for the winner. It's a uh, $2,000 credit towards a shotgun from Upland Gun Company. Um, so that's essentially a, a base that covers a base gun. And then, yep. you know, if you want to keep it at a base gun, you can. And if you want to go wild with customizations, you have, a ver- you know, the base gun taken care of. Um, and I'm, you know, I am obviously biased as I am <laughs> a customer of Upland Gun Company. <laughs> And uh, I believe my shotgun is in the U.S. I was just going to tell, I was going to break the news to you on the show. It's, I'm pretty sure it shipped out of the distribution center this morning. Well, not this morning, sometime today. So it's on its way to you. So the last leg of the journey is, uh, is underway, David. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. So I, uh, I ordered a, um, a side-by-side 28 gauge, uh, of which I am very excited about. I did a bunch of customizations on it, upgraded yeah. the wood, had some really nice engraving, got my initials on it. Um, and yeah, so I've been harassing Nick. I've been trying not to harass you too much, but uh, it came from a good place. So I appreciate your patience with me. Oh, we appreciate, we appreciate your patience, David. That's for sure. It's uh, it's uh, it's very exciting for, for all the customers and we certainly understand that. So you were, uh, you were very good about it. <laughs> Good. That's good to know. But no, I mean, it's, you know, like I I think I said before, I'm a gear nerd and part of my frustration, you know, in the past before discovering Upland Gun Company was uh, I'm a lefty Yep. and it it can be hard to find double guns that are with with the right cast for a left-handed person. And then if you want to go like the bespoke route or the the custom route, historically, the price point has been out of reach um, for what I would probably use as a field gun. Yep. Um, So... So yeah, seeing you know the what you guys have done at Upland Gun Company and and how you've made it accessible, but also just a really really quality product that you can. I mean, some of the engraving you guys are I'm seeing is is just unreal with like the dog silhouettes and everything. Yeah. So yeah, it 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 matched my I like I like things customized to to my preferences, um, while still being you know within that price margin that's, that's accessible and that right. I'm not afraid of like getting getting a little beat up in the field because i am i am hard on my guns but um yep. but yeah so it, it's kind of one of those yeah it was a, a bucket list purchase that uh, i'm very excited to, to hear it's on the way here yeah well i'll be i'll be looking forward to uh to hearing about your initial impressions when i when i get to meet you at pheasant fest next week you should have it by then so um that's definitely awesome. definitely exciting but yeah that's pheasant fest yeah upland rally and i've got the gift card in in that one so definitely pay attention to that one. And then of course there's all kinds of seminars and I would be remiss if I didn't mention this is sort of, um, I don't know if you would classify it that, but the kind of a farewell party for Howard Vincent CEO, um, Marilyn Vetter is stepping in, in his place. And Howard is, uh, I've met him a couple of times. He's a, he's a Duluth guy. So, um, he certainly, uh, has my heart in that regard. And he had a long, long tenure with, Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever and certainly is uh, leaving a legacy. 
Yeah, no, he he definitely has, and this is his his big farewell, and and Maryland's taking the reins after him. So we're excited, we're sad to see Howard go, and we're also excited um, to see what Maryland brings to the organization. And it's going to be, it's going to be good. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm sure there'll be some tears <laughs> up there. But uh, yeah, it's 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 going to be a unique experience. So I think we're all pretty excited. Yep, very cool. Well, as a as a member and a supporter of the organization, uh, an attendee looking forward to next week and an exhibitor and everything else, I uh, can't wait for Pheasant Fest. I really appreciate you taking some time to come on and chat with us a little bit about your story and, and Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever. David, this has been a blast. Like I said, I look forward to meeting you next week and appreciate your time today. Uh, if folks are looking for information pheasantsforever.org we we mentioned the landing page for the trauma event anything else you would point them to um yeah if you have any any questions related to the trauma training or anything pf and qf especially in the southwest you can reach out me to me directly uh, my email is dgutierrez at pheasantsforever.org so it's d g u t i e r r e z at pheasantsforever.org and i'll try and be as helpful as i can Good deal, buddy. I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. Again, thanks for your time today, and thanks for joining us on the Birdshot Podcast. You bet, Nick. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. This is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.